All right, church, well, it is good to be back together. I'm going to move a little bit closer to you because you do feel like you're about 50 miles away. So uh, it's fun to be preaching in kind of a big spot. Obviously, Hope got to do it last week. But what's not fun is preaching next to a restaurant advertisement as all of you sit there and are reminded that when I'm done, you get to go eat. So, um, yeah, try not to look at the, the pizza ranch stuff. So, um, But no, church, it really is good to be back together. I, I love being with you. And uh, I'm excited to be in Matthew together. Today, we will be in Matthew 9, finishing up chapter 9 and moving into chapter 10. We're starting in Matthew 9, verse 35, going to 10, kind of 5 and a half. So if you will join me, stand with me if you're able, and uh, I will read from God's Word. Chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out. And we'll leave that cliffhanger and pick that up next week. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, help us to hear from you this morning. May we have have soft hearts and eager ears. We praise you, O God. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, church, well... um, you may not know this, but Rox uh, took Sayla, our youngest, to the ER last night, and Sayla's fine, uh, but she was having trouble breathing last night because uh, she had a little croup going on. All three of our daughters have struggled with, uh, with, with croup when they were, when they were little, and uh, they're, so they're back, but Rox did not get much sleep. Uh, as you can imagine, they were there until about 4 a.m. Uh, I don't share all this to actually you know, update you about my family, although the, the Johnson household is a little tired this morning, uh, but I, I share this to say that if I had just said, hey... Rox took Sayla to the ER last night, and I left it at that and gave you no details. You'd be like, uh, why did you say that? Or what, what's going on? You know, because going to the ER is not a normal thing. You go to the ER when something needs to be done. We went to the ER, obviously, because there was, well, I didn't go. I, I slept. But uh, Rox went to the ER because uh, something needed to happen. In the same way, in the past, and yes, while I was kind of trying to fall back asleep last night, I was thinking about this, and it was like, this is how I'm going to start tomorrow. So there you go. I scrapped what I had planned, and here we go. But, but the reality is, what we just read in our passage is a transition to the next section of the book of Matthew. But in particular, what Matthew is doing, this, doing in this transition is kind of basically giving us the background of why What's about to happen is happening. He's giving us a glimpse into Jesus' heart. And so, just as saying, hey, we went to the R needs a little bit more clarity, 
what we're about to find in Matthew chapter 10 in particular, which is basically a speech or a discourse where Jesus is instructing his disciples about what's going to happen when they go out and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, just as my statement about the ER needs clarity, that speech needs clarity. Why does Jesus give it? Why does Jesus do what he does in chapter 10? Well, it's because of what we find here at the end of chapter 9. It's what we have here at the end of chapter 9. We've been in this series, Behold Your King. And we've been kind of treating that as a behold, look at Jesus, your king type thing. We've been seeing his authority, his compassion. Well, now we're kind of shifting gears and Behold Your King is kind of taking on a a different meaning in our series. And it's basically, we've been entrusted with the message of Behold Your King. It's what we find in chapter 10. So, where we're going today, what I, what I want us to see when everything is said and done, the key message that Matthew has for us, what he's teaching us in God's word today, is that Jesus has compassion for lost sheep. Okay, that's the first idea. But therefore, he sends us, his people, with his authority to bring his good news. Jesus has compassion, so he sends his people with his authority to bring his good news. Or in other words, we are plan A in sharing the gospel, in sharing the message of Jesus. And all of that comes because of Jesus' compassion. Our proclamation of a message happens because of Jesus' compassion. All right, so if you want to track where we're going, you don't really have sermon notes, but if you want to lay it out in an easy easy way to kind of think about it, today we're going to look at the heart of the shepherd, the state of the sheep, and then the plan of the shepherd. The heart of the shepherd, the state of the sheep, and the plan of the shepherd. So let's dive back in uh, to chapter 9, verse 35, and read it again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, now I've mentioned this before, but this statement is nearly identical to what we find in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And Matthew is doing that to bookend a section of text. You know, in ancient texts, they didn't have different types of fonts or chapter headings or anything like that. So often, authors would kind of put in these bookends to tell you, hey, something has just ended or begun. So this is what's happening here. We had, in verse, or chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus was about to start the Sermon on the Mount. You had him proclaiming and teaching. And then what happened in chapter 8 and 9? Him healing every kind of disease and affliction. So you had those two ideas that's found in this, uh, this kind of little statement. And we just saw that happen. Jesus was going and teaching and proclaiming and healing every disease. And so now we're moving into the next part of Matthew's Gospel. And so, picking up in verse 36, we're going to see kind of a shift in what's going on, where no longer is it just Jesus, the one going out, he sends his disciples. But before we get there, we need to talk about this gospel of the kingdom. If I were to ask you, what is the gospel, I think many of you would be able to tell me, and you might say, it's well, it's Jesus has died on the cross for my sins, and I need to believe in him to be saved. You know, I deserve to die and have eternal separation from God. I deserve to go to hell because of my sin. But Jesus died on the cross for me, and I believe and trust in his payment. And that would be true and correct. But that's not exactly how Matthew is using that term gospel here. Instead, it's got some deeper meaning. Now, or not deeper meaning, I should say kind of a, a, um, a fuller meaning that includes us believing in Jesus uh, for our sins, but 
more as well. Now, this idea of the gospel of the kingdom is something that Matthew is picking up on, and Jesus, I would ultimately say, from Isaiah in particular. Isaiah uses this word gospel, this word, and that means good news, in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 52, verse 7. This is what it says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. It's that word gospel, particularly in the Greek translation. Gospel who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So this gospel, this good news, has to do with peace, has to do with happiness, has to do with salvation, it's all news, and then it's summarized with your God reigns. The word gospel is oiangelion, which may sound like evangelism to you, or the evangel. It's the same word. We are an evangelical free church is what our church is. It's a good news. And that word was almost always associated with the announcement of a new king or the victory in battle of a king. That's the good news. And so Isaiah is talking about a future time when God's right rule and reign, or I should say restorative rule and reign, is going to come to the world. And he says that is the good news, and it's going to be associated with God's messianic king. And so the gospel writers pick up on this language in Isaiah, and then when they're writing their Gospels and talking about how Jesus was talking about his ministry, they're saying, that's the Gospel. It's the good news. Jesus is that king. And and here's a definition for you. The Gospel of the kingdom is the announcement that the restorative rule and reign of God has come into the world through his Messiah. It's that announcement. Now, that obviously includes our sin. But it's also not just me and my little world getting saved, but it's the whole world getting renewed. That's the way that Matthew is using this term, this good announcement. Not just, hey, believe in Jesus, but believe in Jesus and participate in his grand plan. It is a full and robust picture. It's beautiful, beautiful. So I want you to know that because when we talk about Jesus sending his people into the world to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, it's a big message and it's a beautiful message. All right, so we're about to dive into the second discourse in the coming weeks and we're going to see the expectations we can have and also the encouragement that Jesus gives us as we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But here... We need to be looking at why. Okay, all of this was kind of introduction as to what we're doing. But let's start with the heart of the shepherd. And yes, that was much longer than normal. But let's talk about the heart of the shepherd that we find. So with this heart, it's clear that Jesus is moved with compassion for people. Jesus is moved with compassion for people. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion. Now, this compassion is not just a simple, oh, I pity you, I feel bad for you, you must be in a rough spot. But no, this word compassion is a gut-level response to the plight of someone else. When I came back and candidated here, uh, way back in the spring of 2022, I speak of that as, as if it was forever ago, a year and a half ago. When you guys first met me, I preached from Matthew 18 and, and talked about this exact same word. 
This idea of being moved, the word there is, uh, in, in, the, in the Greek is, uh, well, okay, so when we talk about our emotions, we would say, I'm moved in my heart. They didn't talk about it that way. They talked about being moved in your gut or your bowels. So the word is literally to be moved in your bowels. Splachinizomai, it's a fun word. So Jesus here is moved in his bowels for people. That's what Matthew was saying. And he uses this word very selectively at key points in his gospel. He uses it here. He uses it right before the feeding of the 5,000. He uses it in Matthew 18 in a parable where a king forgives a servant an incalculable debt. But here we see Jesus' heart. It is moved with compassion. Not just mere intellectual thoughts. Oh, I should feel bad for you, or I should love you, but oh, I can't help it. I am moved with deep sympathy for you. That's what he has. And notice, these sheep have done nothing to deserve it. It's not, oh, you scratched my back, or hey, you've got your life together, and that's why I'm moved with compassion for you. Jesus just naturally has compassion for these lost sheep. Now this image is strong enough as it is, but whenever the gospel writers start talking about sheep and shepherds, they have a clear Old Testament passage in mind. There's actually many Old Testament passages that talk about uh, the shepherd, God being the shepherd, but there's one in particular that is particularly powerful. It's in Ezekiel 34. Almost all of Ezekiel 34 is about shepherds and sheep and God is kind of uh, rebuking the leaders of Israel because they were supposed to be good shepherds and they were bad shepherds. But picking up in verse 8, I'm going to read 8 to 12 and then 23 and 24 in Ezekiel 34. Listen what God says about shepherds and a coming time in the future when his kingdom would come and what would happen then. Okay. As I live, declares Yahweh God, Surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep, because they weren't feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. So the shepherds are eating the sheep they're supposed to be protecting. Then verse 11, For thus says Yahweh God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So God says, I'm going to be their shepherd. He cares deeply about his people and longs for them to have a shepherd. Now skipping down to verse 23, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh, I have spoken. Well, I thought God just said he was going to be shepherd. And now he says his prince David is going to be shepherd. But also David's long dead when Ezekiel is writing. He's been dead for about 400 years. So what's going on? God is talking about his messianic king who was not only his representative but Yahweh himself. And the gospel writers, when they start talking about Jesus, talking about being a shepherd and there being sheep around, they are saying, 
Look at how God has come to shepherd His people. This new age of restoration is here. Matthew just said that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then we get a picture of the shepherd caring for the sheep, which is again a picture of God's restorative rule and reign coming to the world. So this isn't just, oh, God feels bad for us and He cares. But God is doing something about it. He is our shepherd. He is compassionate. And he is not a reluctant shepherd. You know, sometimes for those of you who uh, may have kids or you've been around kids and you know you're supposed to, you know, care for them at some point, sometimes you're just like, oh, okay, here we go. Here we go again. It's not always that way, but sometimes, you know, you feel that way. Jesus is not like that. He looks at the sheep and he is moved. He is moved. And we're in a big space God is far more grand than this dome. Imagine this would be like a grand cathedral. God would be far more grand than that. And yet he still has compassion on you and me. How do you view Jesus? How do you view the Lord's compassion? Do you view it as reluctant? Or do you believe when you read When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That is the compassion that the Lord has for people. Now, why does he have this compassion? Let's look at the state of the sheep. So that's the heart of the shepherd. Let's look at the state of the sheep. There's two big problems with the sheep. One, we need a shepherd. That's pretty obvious from what we saw there. But then kind of Jesus shifts metaphors and starts talking about a harvest where we see there's few laborers to tell of the shepherd. So we need a shepherd, but there are few laborers to tell people about this shepherd. We're harassed and helpless, and we have few laborers to bring that good news. So let's look at being harassed and helpless uh, real quick first, and then we'll move on to few laborers. Harassed, just the idea that there's a threat from without. There's wild animals, and there's bad shepherds. But we're also helpless in the sense that we are have a threat from within. You know, when we read the scriptures and we see you know, them talking about us as sheep. Our image of sheep is often, oh, you know, they're, they're cuddly and they're nice. Sheep are dumb. They're real dumb. If you've been around sheep, you're like, yeah, they're, they're stupid. It is not a compliment to be called a sheep. They're, they're stupid. I, I, uh, so when I, when I was a, a missionary in Asia, uh, one of our national leaders had grown up a shepherd. And uh, I remember him coming and talking to us once. And he was telling us, when, when he was growing up as a shepherd, they had to be careful where they put their sheep and what they were eating because if you aren't careful and you start feeding the sheep, you know, or you put them in a place where there's too much to eat, they can literally eat themselves to death. They're that dumb. I, some of us, we may feel like we have that problem too. Like <laughs> we have trouble stopping. I certainly do. But sheep, I mean, they will literally, they don't know when to stop. They'll, they'll eat until they die. That is how dumb sheep are. We need a shepherd. We are in a state where we need a compassionate shepherd who can tell us, you're done eating, who leads us beside still waters, who sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies, one who walks through the valley of the shadow of death with us. We are helpless We have that kind of shepherd who is compassionate on us even when we are foolish and stupid. Oftentimes, I hate hate kind of bringing this up, but if my kids are being foolish and stupid, I find it difficult to have compassion 
And sometimes it's, I like to say, or I like to think, try not to say it, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, you know? That's just sometimes how you feel. But that's not the way that our God is towards us. He is compassionate to the lost sheep. The good news of our kingdom invites us to see that we need a shepherd and we have a shepherd. And that is something to praise God for, that he loves us even in the midst of our brokenness. We are harassed and helpless. But also, well, uh, excuse me, let me, let me ask one application question real quick. How do you see people who need a shepherd? Do you get frustrated with them? Do you say, ah, if, why are you doing that? Or are you moved in your soul for them in the same way that Jesus is moved for you? He is good. And as we see his goodness, that will give us more compassion for others. All right, the second problem, though, is that there's few laborers. Jesus shifts metaphors and talks about uh, this harvest in 37. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's obviously talking about the need for people to hear the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And we can talk about here and there. You know, there's a need here. There's a harvest here. There are plenty of people here in Sioux Center who do not know the gospel. Yes, a lot of people in Sioux Center go to church. But one, not everybody. But two, there are a lot of people who go to church and they don't know the gospel of the kingdom or they don't believe it. There are people within our own church that struggle to believe and may not believe. The harvest is plentiful. Why do I share the gospel week after week? Because I know that there are people here who don't believe. But also even our neighbors. Our town is full of people who don't believe. Are our eyes open to seeing the harvest field around us? More on how to bring that message later. But let's, I want to talk about there just a little bit. A little more, I should say. Talking about the harvest out there. I'm going to share some statistics uh, with you. I don't always share statistics, but when I do, I get excited. So here you go. Uh, Around the world, there are over 17,000 unique people groups. By people group, I mean generally they kind of usually have their own language or at least their own cultural identity, where it would be difficult for another person from another culture to kind of interact with them in a way where there wouldn't be many barriers. So there's 17,400 plus people groups. Now, Of those people groups, there is a whole group of them that are called unreached people groups. And by unreached, we mean that they are less than 2% evangelical Christian. The number of total unreached people groups are 7,402. 7,402. A large number. By the way, all these statistics are coming off of a ministry website called The Traveling Team. Uh, So you can go uh, look them up, The Traveling Team. I love them. Uh, I've had a huge impact in my life. But uh, over 7,400 unreached people groups. The number of people in those people groups are 3.28 billion. 3.28 billion people live in a culture where practically no one around them is a Christian, an evangelical Christian. Unreached people groups make up 41.5% of the world population. Now, These people groups are not scattered all over the world. I mean, yeah, in one sense they are, but most of them are in one place. 96.3% of the world's unreached people are located geographically in what uh, scholars call the 1040 window. The 1040 window. 
that's basically, and it's from West Africa to Asia, between 10 degrees north latitude to 40 degrees north latitude. So if you imagine a big rectangle just kind of spread across the world in those senses, uh, 96.3 of the world's unreached people, and by that me- people that live in unreached people groups, live in that place. Within that window, there's over 6,100 unreached people groups and 3.16 billion unreached people. 3.16 billion unreached people. So of the 3.28 billion unreached people, 3.16 billion of them live in the 1040 window. Now, why do I share all that? Because we need to talk about how much money is going to the 1040 window uh, for missions. Okay, let's talk about uh, what we're doing with regards to that. Numbers-wise... Evangelical Christians, there's about 400 million of them and 600 million Protestants worldwide. In ministry, for all of those people, there's about 4.19 million full-time Christian workers. So a little over 4 million full-time Christian workers. Now, you may say, oh, 4 million Christian workers, that sounds like a lot. 95% of those Christian workers are working within the Christian world. Within the Christian world. There's over... Uh, In 2001, at least, and I think the numbers have carried true to today, in 2001, there were 900 churches for every one unreached people group. So if we as a church said, we're going to own trying to reach an unreached people group, we'd have 900 church partners, theoretically, that we could partner with, and every church could do that, and every unreached people group in the world would be covered. That's incredible. But we're not doing that. There's over 54,000 evangelical Christians for every unreached people group. Let's talk about money, because money is really where the story is. If you took all the Christians in the world, the money they make in a year is about $53 trillion. That's trillion with a T, dollars. If you look at just evangelical Christians, that's about $6.72 trillion, so a little bit less. But looking at Christians as a whole, if you were to take all the money that they make, again, $53 trillion, and then look at how much of their money goes to any, any, Christian cause, it's only 1.7%. It's $896 billion, which sounds like a lot, but that's out of $53 trillion. Only 1.7 is tithed to any Christian cause. Here's a quote from uh, missions expert Claude Hickman. He says this, Americans have recently spent more money buying Halloween costumes for their pets than the amount given to reach the unreached. Now, not necessarily American Christians have spent more money on their pets for Halloween costumes, but if you look at how much money gets spent on pet costumes, it's more than what we send to reach the unreached. Okay, a little bit more breaking down this money. So of that tithe, of that tithe, 82%, by the tithe, I mean the 1.7%, 82% of that goes to home ministries of local churches. 12% goes to home evangelism within the same Christian nations. Now, if you think of something going overseas in the sense of going out into missions, only 6% of that tithe then goes to missions. It's $52 billion total. $52 billion total. Now, you may think, okay, $52 billion, that's still, still working with a lot. But then let's ask the question, how much of that money is going to work among unreached people groups? And here's where the numbers are really, really sobering. Of that... It's only 1.7% goes to work among unreached people groups. It's about 880 million of that 52 billion. So for every $100,000 that Christians make, $100,000, 
$1.70 goes to reach unreached people groups in the least reached places of the world. I think that reveals, one, our priorities as Western evangelical Christians, but two, it just speaks to the, the fact that there are not as many laborers going out into the harvest field. I have a couple of dollar bills with me. I, I uh, got this illustration from uh, uh, Claude Hickman, who I referenced earlier. It's about uh, 50 feet from here at home plate, right where this black box is, uh, to the back bleacher. If you were to count 50 feet as being all the money that is given to kind of Christian efforts, and you wanted to count the amount that goes to missions, you could take these $2, lay them end to end here on the ground. I know you all can't see it, but imagine just $2 sitting here up next to the box going down towards first base. And that's, that's how much. And it's, it is technically money, but we're looking more at distance. Now, if you ask the question, how much is going to unreached people groups, you got to take them, stick them together, turn them on their side. That's how much is going compared to the amount of money that we make. It's sobering. And Jesus here says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The laborers are few. What would it look like for us to raise up resources and send laborers? Do we care about the least reached places in the world? Do we think about them? He's moved with, Jesus is moved with compassion. Do we care as well? Now, Jesus clearly has a plan. He does something about it. He's moved with compassion, right? For these people that he sees. What does he do? He's got a plan that has two parts. To pray and go. So we've seen the heart of the shepherd. We've seen the state of the sheep. Now let's look at his plan. His plan is essentially pray and go. And he starts with prayer. He starts with prayer. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. In verse 38, what does he say? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Church, prayer is easy. It costs you nothing. It is easy, but do we do it? Do we pray for the Lord to send laborers into the harvest? This is a command. This isn't a if you feel like it. But a pray. I'm convicted when I think about what I pray here on Sunday mornings with all of us. How often do I pray that the Lord would raise up missionaries from our church to go? Honestly, it's not that often, if ever. I can't think of a time off the top of my head. But man, this is Jesus' heart that we would be praying to go. I'm reminded of, this, of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer and he says, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is... The same thing. His kingdom coming, His will be being done. Do we care about the same things? This is an effective prayer too because we know that this is in the will of God. Lord, will you send out laborers into the harvest? He says, yes, I will certainly be answering that prayer. Now, just application real quick, what to do. Think of here and there. Here, I would encourage you to come up, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but come up with a top five list. Basically, write down five non-believers you know and pray for them every day. Just put it on a, you know, a sticky, nar- sticky note or an index card. Keep it in your Bible. Just put their names on there and every day just pray for those same five people. Pray that the Lord would uh, help them to hear the gospel. You might be surprised the Lord may open doors for you to share the gospel with them. 
but pray. Pray here. But then secondly, pray there. You can go to uh, joshuaproject.net, and every day they will highlight a new people group, unreached people group in particular, that you can pray for. That's joshuaproject.net. So you never have to wonder, hey, who do I pray for? Just go to joshuaproject.net, and they'll have all sorts of prayer requests for them. They'll give you statistics about those people. They'll tell you something about their culture. You can pray for those people very easily. Pray here, pray there, every day. Jesus commands us to. But it's not a prayer that comes out of nowhere. Again, it's a prayer that comes out of Jesus' heart of compassion. So he commands us to pray, and then secondly, he sends laborers into the harvest. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus is like, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send people into the harvest field. And then the very next thing that he does is take the twelve and send them out. No coincidence there. Jesus is doing exactly what he just said uh, would be done. Basically, laborers being sent into the harvest. In chapter 10, verse 1, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then uh, he lists the names, but he says the names of the twelve apostles are these. I'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus basically gives uh, uh, these disciples three things. One, he gives them authority. We've been looking at Jesus' authority. And here, isn't this remarkable? The, 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 the guy who raised the dead, the one who is healing with a touch and, and calming the seas with a command, gives authority to his disciples. This theme gets picked up as well at the very end of Matthew in the Great Commission. Jesus gives authority, but he also secondly gives them a message. He gives them the good news of the kingdom. They're to go out and proclaim. We're going to see that in verse 7 next week. They are proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is a good message. This message of repent and believe. We saw earlier in Matthew, uh, back in chapter 4, that Jesus was telling people to repent for the kingdom of God was here. We are to repent and believe in God's rule and reign, which means confessing my sins and submitting to him, trusting in Jesus' death on the cross. All of that is encapsulated in that. So we have, they have a message of good news, and it is good news. Sometimes we convince ourselves that it's not a good news or not good news. We're afraid of sharing the good news because we think, oh, it's offensive or I might be rejected. And we forget we're talking about the God of the universe saying, I have compassion for you and I want you to be one of my sheep. That's the message that we have. So he gives them authority. He gives them a message. And when you put those two things together, you get the third thing. That is a commission. He's sending them. You may have noticed that he calls them disciples. And then in verse 2, he says the names of the 12 apostles are these. Apostles means, means sent ones. It's also a biblical office, a, uh, a title of those who were with Jesus and were officially sent by him to lead the church. We no longer have that apostolic office. But in this sense, they are sent. They are somebody who is sent out. So you may look at this and you may say, well, Pastor Mark, uh, this, this, is, this commission here is for the disciples. This is not for me. And in one sense, yes, Jesus was not explicitly talking to you when he said these words. But as we're going to see in, our, uh, in the, the discourse in the coming weeks, this is for us. You're going to have to take my word for it now. But we are sent out. Jesus very clearly is talking uh, to the future church through what we find in chapter 10. Because he starts talking about things that aren't going to happen on this little mission trip that the disciples are going to have. They're not going to be testifying before kings and getting thrown in prison in this little excursion. So Jesus is clearly looking towards the future, and it's for us as well. So he gives them authority, a message, and a commission. Why does he do this? 
He could have written his name in the sky, right? He could have said, I am Jesus, I am the king, my restorative rule and reign is here, bow to me and worship. But instead, he takes fickle guys. Look at this group of guys. We've got fishermen, we've got a tax collector, a zealot, a guy who betrays him. And it's like, these are the guys that Jesus entrusts with the message of the good news of the kingdom? Jesus, what's going on? These guys don't have it all together. Peter's going to deny you three times. Even when, you, when he confesses that you're the Christ and you tell him you have to die, he starts balking at that. Jesus, what are you doing? And then to send us? Like, have you looked at my life, Jesus? Have you made a mistake? This is Jesus restoring us to our rightful place. We are image bearers of God. We were meant to represent the Lord to all of his creation in the world. And so entrusting us with this message of proclamation of the good news of his rule and reign is putting us where we ought to be. It's what we should be doing. It's what we were created to do as his image bearers. It's who we are. It's good for us as well. And again, it's all coming out of his compassion. It's compassionate for us to restore us in this place. Jesus is having compassion for lost sheep and he's sending his people with his authority to bring his good news. So what do we do with this? Obviously, we talked about praying, but when we talk about going, when we go here, that can be sometimes pretty scary, sometimes more scary than going there because here you have to live with the consequences of conversations you have with your friends and your family and they might look at you funny. But I think there's some things you can do that make it easy. One, be a question asker. Just ask a lot of questions about people's spiritual backgrounds. and Just see where that leads you. But two, be ready to be able to talk about the gospel of the kingdom. Be able to talk about God ruling and reigning. Be able to talk about our rebellion, our sin. Be able to talk about Christ's death on the cross for our sin. And be able to talk about Jesus, or having to respond to Jesus. So have a message about God, a message about sin, a message about Christ, and a message about a response. If you have those four things, you'll be ready. Don't have time today to go into more of that detail, but let's talk about going there. Could the Lord actually be calling you to go to that great need? To go, you need to know. I encourage you to start praying, start reading, go to joshuaproject.net very often, and start caring. Ask to receive missionary updates so that you can hear what's going on, so that your heart can be moved with compassion just like Jesus' heart is moved for those people and for you. May we be a people that go not out of a duty of, uh, this is awful and I just have to, but out of saying, Jesus, you love those people and they need to hear the gospel. Church, we are Christ's plan A. He does not tell us of a plan B for the lost sheep. He says it's up to us to bring the good news. So will we be a people that is going, going with the gospel of the kingdom? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have compassion on us, that you sent Jesus to be our good shepherd. We thank you that you do not let us go. Father, help us to have hearts that long to pray and long to go. Help us to be a church that prays and goes. May we be known as a sending place. May we be thinking about your work around the world and here. May we be longing to see lost sheep professing faith in Jesus Christ. 
Lord, help us to have compassion and help us to see your compassion day in and day out. And may it never get old. May we rejoice at your goodness always and forever. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.